Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of a series looking at Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, a series that we have called Follow. And we call it that because throughout these verses, we see Jesus in the first century interacting with people, and again and again and again, Jesus invites them to follow him. And the same call really comes out to you and I today, even though we're separated by some 2,000 years from the events of the New Testament. We today are invited to follow Christ as well. So what does that mean? What does it look like? How do we begin to live that out in our lives? That's what we have been looking at over the last few weeks. And we're going to continue that today by looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Now, before we we look at those verses together, I want to just acknowledge something for us. And, And what I want to acknowledge is this. We have a common enemy. We have a common enemy. And that enemy, as, as Kevin said, is not defined by the, the jerseys that we wear and the teams that we support, but the common enemy we have is actually the enemy of death. Every single one of us in this room has this enemy of death that is pursuing us, that is chasing us, and we are doing everything we can to fight off its effects. I mean, just think at some of the ways that we fight off the effects of death. Think about just our investment in medicine. As American citizens this year, over $3 trillion will be invested by us and our government in our health care. And when we invest that money, what are we doing? We're trying to stave off the effects of death, keep it a little further away. The the money that we spend to try to win some kind of short-term victory over death. And not only that, but we think about the time that we spend with this issue, the things that we will do uh, to, to train our bodies and to exercise, to slow down the advance of the effects of, of death and, and aging in our lives. I mean, I think about that it came very clear to me yesterday. I ran the Brookhaven Run, um, and I ran it with my 10-year-old son, and he absolutely destroyed me on the, that race. He just flew right by me, and I'm thinking, I used to be able to do better than this, but I can't anymore. What is happening to me? Well, I'm, I'm older than I used to be. Death is catching up, and no matter how much time I invest, no matter how much money I spend on medicine, the fact is death is still pursuing me. And, and those are some kind of, you know, kind of humorous analogies, but the whole issue of death is way more personal than that, isn't it? I mean, who among us has not felt the sting of death? Someone we love that has left us too soon, a spouse, a a child, a parent, a neighbor, a friend. We all have felt this sting of death. Even as a church family, just this last week, uh, Kevin prayed for them earlier, but the Combs family, Doug, 47 years old, passes away. And we think about just the sting and the pain of death. It's a common enemy. It is out for us all. As a matter of fact, because it is so consistent, not only as Americans, but as people in every culture, every world religion that has been come up with tries to answer this question of death. How do we make sense of it? How do we avoid it? What happens after it comes? Matter of fact, uh, Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy says this about the issue of death and religion. He says, when I looked at religion, I said I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they did, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, 
and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. But then I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who has conquered death. And so I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible, and I discovered that he said, because I live, ye shall live also. Friends, when we think about Jesus Christ being the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it should not surprise us that he would have sovereignty and authority even over death. We see that clearly in his resurrection from the grave, but we also see that in his earthly ministry as he demonstrated his authority over death many times, including in the verses we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26, we see Jesus perform two miracles that really demonstrate his authority over death. And by looking at them, friends, my hope and prayer is that we are encouraged by that today. And we are encouraged to trust Jesus, to have our faith in him, that we would follow him all of our lives and on into eternity, past the enemy of death. So I want to read for us these verses in chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, then we'll back up and we'll look at them a little more in depth. Verse 18 begins this way, while Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Friends, reading these verses, we see these two miracles, and I want to use Hardy's two questions to help organize our thoughts about these verses today. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered death. Now, we see his authority over death clearly demonstrated in these two miracles that take place here. Now, what are these miracles? Uh, The first of these miracles has to do with a young girl about 12 years old, who was the daughter of the ruler of a synagogue named Jairus. Now, if you're wondering where I got some of those details, it's because these stories, both of these stories are recorded for us in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. All three of the synoptic gospel writers that wrote many of the similar things, those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those people record this story with varying degree of detail. So when we put all of those things together, we see that one of these miracles involves a man named Jairus whose daughter was sick. In Matthew's telling of the story, he picks it up where the girl has already died. But from the other two gospel writers, we find out that Jairus actually left to go meet with Jesus before his daughter had passed away. And so Jairus goes to 
meet with Jesus because he is convinced that Jesus is the only one who can help his daughter's condition. She is sick. She is very sick. She is on the verge of death, and indeed, she was going to die. And because of the severity of the situation, and because what Jairus had seen Jesus already do in casting out demons and performing miracles, Jairus thinks, the only one who can help my daughter is Jesus. And so Jairus leaves the synagogue, he walks past his friends the Pharisees, doesn't care what they think about it, and he falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, please do something for my daughter. And Jesus rises and he goes to the house and he walks in and he grabs the girl's hand who has already passed away and life returns to her body. Now that is an amazing moment. She stands up, and she resumes life. What a moment. You know, sometimes we read these things in Scripture, and it's just a Bible story, right? But can you imagine what that would have been like to be there in that moment? As the child who was dead, the mourners are present, suddenly life returns. Friends, that's one of the miracles that's found here. But embedded inside of that miracle of the resurrection of this little girl from the dead is the story of a woman. And as Jesus travels from when Jairus meets him to where Jesus gets to Jairus' house, on, en route to his house, a woman sneaks up behind Jesus and grabs the back tassel of his robe because she is seeking healing. Now, her condition is a little different. She was not dead, but she was bleeding, and she had been bleeding for a number of years. For 12 years, she had been bleeding. And she had tried to find help. She had tried to find a cure, but she couldn't find it. And so she, like Jairus, sees Jesus as the only one who might be able to help her. And so she risks public embarrassment. She risks everything. She goes and finds her way to the feet of Christ. She grabs that tassel, and in an instant, she is healed. Now, in these two miracles, in some senses, they seem to really not have a whole lot in common, um, other than the fact that they happen in chronological order together. Um, we see actually several things that show that these are, are twin miracles. They're miracles that, that actually have uh, some similarities, and, and it's important for us when we think about Jesus conquering death to see the similarities that these two miracles have. The first of those similarities that we see in these two miracles is that both of these women had incurable conditions. Now, certainly Jairus' daughter had the incurable condition of death. I mean, in, in our world today, even with all of the medical advancements that we have, we have machines that might be able to prolong life for a little bit, but when somebody dies, dies, they're, they're, they're gone, right? That would have been even more the case in the first century before a number of those medical advances that we have. And so the daughter dies, her condition is incurable. But in a similar way, we see the same thing happen with this woman. The, the parallel accounts in Mark 5 and Luke 8 let us know that she had been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all of her savings going to various doctors. None of them were able to heal her. These two women are in two desperate situations with conditions that nobody can do anything for. That's something we see in common between the two situations. The second thing we see in common between these twin miracles has to do with, with the issue of death. These two women are revealing different stages of death. As it relates to Jairus' daughter, she had gone ahead and passed away. 
it was happening in an instant. But as we think about the woman who sneaks up behind Jesus and grabs the, the hem of his garment, she is somebody who was gradually dying. But a bleed for 12 years would have been death. Not only physical death, but also social death. She would have been ostracized because of her condition. She would not have been allowed to socialize because she would have been seen as unclean. She would not have been allowed to come and to worship, to be a part of the synagogue because she was unclean. She was experiencing varying stages of death. In both of these situations, they had incurable conditions and they were revealing differing stages of death. The third thing that we see that's consistent between these two miracles has to do with where they go. Both situations fall at the feet of Jesus in order to find hope for their situation. Jairus comes and he bows before Jesus. It's at his feet that he lays the situation, the incurable situation. Jairus in that moment is expressing faith saying, Jesus, you're the one with compassion. You're the one with power. You're the one who is able to show up and change everything. And so I turn to you and you alone to do something about this situation. That's what Jairus says. And the same thing happens for the woman. She says, Jesus, it's at your feet that something can change in my situation. No physician can do anything, but I think there's something different about you. And so both situations, they come to the feet of Jesus seeking restoration, seeking healing. Fourth thing that we see that is consistent between these miracles is this. There is instantaneous salvation that comes at the feet of Jesus. It happens in an instant. As it relates to Jairus' daughter, when Jesus shows up in the house, he walks in, he opens the door, he grabs her hand, and she instantly arises and walks and is well again. In the case of the woman, she touches the hem of his robe, and in faith, in an instant, the bleeding stops and she is healed. In both cases, there is instantaneous healing. There is instantaneous salvation and restoration that happens when they come to Christ. And then the fifth thing that we see has to do with the fact that there was intentionality in this, intentional healing. Jesus didn't accidentally raise the young girl from the dead. He showed up at the house and grabbed her by the hand and called her by name, and she stands up and and returns to life. There's intentionality that happens in that moment. Even as it relates to this woman who sneaks up behind him, we find out in the other accounts that that Jesus turns and addresses her when she grabs the hem of his robe, that he, he realizes that something has happened. Now, why did that happen? Was Jesus trying to embarrass her? No. But Jesus wanted her to know that she wasn't healed on accident. She was healed on purpose. The Son of God acknowledged her situation and did something about it. There was intentionality in that. Now, when we think about these miracles, some of us may have been in situations that feel like this, but I'm guessing that many of us have not been in situations that have played out exactly like this, right? Um, We've been in that moment of sorrow that has ended in sorrow, at least on our earthly plane. We've been in that moment where we have had the ongoing lengthy medical condition and it has persisted. But friends, I I think the reason why these three miracles or these two miracles are included together in all three of the synoptic gospels is because God wants us to see something special in them. He wants us to see a pattern and a hope for the situations that we deal with. And there is actually 
something that we can relate to in the midst of these two miracles on a spiritual level. Now, what is that? Well, the first thing I think we can relate to on this has to do with the incurable condition that we have. Each of us in this room has an incurable condition that is called sin. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have this incurable condition. All of us have a propensity to rebel against God, not to run towards Him. All of us have a propensity to to live out a selfishness instead of an othersness or a God-glorifyingness. All of us have this, this sinfulness inside of us, and it's incurable. And you know what? When we think about our lives, sometimes we don't have to think back very far to see that sinfulness expressing itself, do we? We think about last night and what we did, and some of us are even here today because of guilt over last night, and we think we want to get away from that. We want to turn, where do we go? Where did it come from, this incurable condition? It comes from sin. We've got this condition, and we can do nothing in our own power to slow it down. Not only that, but we see, we can relate to the fact that death is coming. There were various stages of death in these two miracles, and the reality is death is coming for all of us. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And it's not talking here just about a physical death, but also a spiritual death or a separation from God. We have this incurable condition called sin, and there is a consequence of death and separation that is coming. And when we realize the, the depth of that pain and the despair that that creates. What do we do? Well, the story continues and provides the parallel for us. We need to come and faithfully fall at the feet of Jesus. See, Jairus came and fall. The woman came and grabbed the hem of the robe because they said, there is nowhere else, there is no one else who can do anything for my incurable situation than you, Jesus. In the same way, as we realize the depth of our sin, as we realize the pain and the, the, where it leads into death and separation from God, we need to also understand that the only hope that we have is to fall faithfully at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, it is, it is you who can do something about this condition that is inside of each of us. It is you that can go to the cross, Jesus, and offer your life as a sacrifice for mine so that the death that was deserved me might be paid by you and I might have new life. Death is coming as a result of our incurable condition. We need to remember to faithfully fall at the feet of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 lets us know that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Have you faithfully fallen at the feet of Jesus? Fourth parallel that we might be able to relate to is this. Instantaneous healing, instantaneous salvation can come to our souls at the moment that we believe. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, From the moment of our belief, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us and gives us a new identity. From the moment of our belief. When we fall at the feet of Jesus and we acknowledge our sinfulness and we acknowledge his provision for that sin, in that moment we go from death to life. In that moment our souls are healed and though we may die physically later, though we will die physically later, there is the the hope of eternal life in Jesus because of what he has done for us. And that happens in a moment, in an instant, at the moment of our belief. Jesus has provided a way to cure the incurable in our lives. Fifth thing 
that we see that we can relate to here is this. There's intentional healing that happens. Romans 5.8 says that we're not connected by God through Jesus on accident, but God loved us and demonstrated that love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and pursued us and died for us. You know, for those of us who are followers of Christ in this room, may we never, ever forget that we follow Christ because he pursued us. It's not an accident. We're not in on a technicality. We are followers of Christ because he wanted us with him. He came and revealed himself to us and invited us to follow. It begins with the intentionality. Just as the woman who grabbed the hem of the robe, just as Jairus who fell at the feet, Jesus went to the house. It is with intention that Jesus heals. It is with intention that we follow. It's God's will. Friends, if you are here today, I want to go one step further. If you are here today and your soul is stirred and you have never followed Christ before, But you find yourself here today and you find yourself coming face to face with your sin. Know this, that's not an accident. It's because the Spirit of God is at work around you and with intentionality, God is calling you to follow Him. Friends, in these twin miracles, we see some parallels that reveal to us that Jesus conquered death. But here's the thing. Jesus also made a way for us. Jesus makes a way for us. Now, I I mentioned earlier, these are are two twin miracles, but guess what? They're not identical twins. There's some differences. And I think it's really beautiful that there are differences in these miracles because in the differences, we realize the breadth of the grace of God. If these were identical situations, then we might think that God only has mercy and grace for one type of person. But when we look at the differences in these stories, we realize that God has grace for all of us if we would turn to him. Now, where do we see these differences here? Well, we just need to look at the passage. The the first difference that we see between these has to do with who makes the request. In, In one account... It's a man who makes the request. It is, it is Jairus who comes and makes the request for his daughter. And the other one, it's the woman who comes and makes it. There's a difference between a man and a woman. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's pretty profound exegesis there, Pastor. Thank you for explaining that deep uh, truth. Many years of seminary to tell you that, the obvious, right? But it, it's important for us to see. Jesus doesn't care if a man or a woman makes the request. He listens to both of us. There's a, there's a breadth of the grace of God. Not only that, but... The next thing that we see in in differences has to do with the person making the request again. In one sense, there is a famous person who makes the request. In another sense, it's someone who is anonymous or not famous. Who who made the the first request? It was Jairus. Well, who was Jairus? Well, he was the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum. What did that mean? That meant he was basically, let's just, not a perfect parallel, but he was the senior pastor of the synagogue in the town where Jesus lived. He was somebody that everybody in the community knew. He was somebody who had influence. He was famous. His name is recorded in the other gospel accounts. I mean, this was, this was a somebody. He came. Of course, Jesus listened to him. But, but you know what? Lest we think Jesus only listens to famous people, this woman comes, and what was her name? We don't know. Now, Do we not know her name because 
she didn't matter? No. I, I think it's, it's intentional in the way that the, the story is written to remind us that the famous and the not famous are able to come to God, are able to come to Christ. The next, the next thing we see has to do with the, this, the status and worship of these two people. In one sense, in Jairus, you have a worship leader. In the woman, you have somebody who was forbidden because of her hemorrhaging from actually going into the synagogue, from even walking in the building. You know, the fact that Jesus would entertain Jairus makes sense. He's, he's a church guy, right? But he would listen to, to, the, to the woman who was not even allowed to go in the synagogue. That's, that's amazing. It shows us the breadth of the grace of God. It, it's for all of us in this room. It's available to us all. Next thing we see has to do with who the request was asked to help. In one sense, Jairus comes and requests help for his daughter. In the other sense, the woman comes and requests help for herself. I think it's important for us to remember, too, sometimes we think, well, God will only listen if somebody else makes the request for me because he only listens to other people. No, the reality is when we see this, God answers requests for us and for others. We can bring our requests to him. We can lay our our incurable situations at his feet. The next thing has to do with, with the issue of time, and I think this is fascinating when we see this. The, the, the daughter of Jairus, the other accounts tell us, was 12 years old. For 12 years, she was healthy, and then she suddenly died. The woman that comes up behind Jesus, that woman had been sick for 12 years and was suddenly made well. A fascinating parallel in time between those two things. You know, whether we are experiencing challenges that we are only aware of in a moment or we are experiencing challenges that have been around for years and years and years, in both instances, we can go to God. We can bring those requests to Jesus and lay them at his feet. And the last difference that we see here is, has to do with how available and known these things were. As it relates to the situation with Jairus, that was a very public situation. Uh, Flute players show up to mourn the loss of the girl. It was a very public thing. But the woman, her situation would have been concealed and private, and yet Jesus was able to address and meet both. Friends, the the grace of God is is wide, and it it is broad, and it's available to each of us He's made a way, not just for some, but for all. Now, I want to look just for a moment at this list. And when you see these lists and these comparisons between these two miracles, many people will look at these things and want to offer a critique of the Bible. They want to look at these things and say, this sure looks like somebody authored this story to fit their own purpose. I mean, does this story have an author? That's, that's maybe what some critics of the Bible would want to say. They would want to say Matthew just made this stuff up to make this really cool story. I mean, the 12 years, 12 years, I mean, come on. That doesn't just happen that way. It's like Matthew made it up, or Luke made it up, or Mark made it up, or somebody in Matthew, Mark, or Luke's name made it up. But guess what, friends? I think there's a better explanation for this. And that better explanation is this. There is an author of that story. God himself, who authored a story to reveal his greatness. How does the 12 years and the 12 years line up? Because God was at work. God was doing something. And guess what? God is authoring a story around us as well. I mentioned earlier, we're not here by accident. God is authoring a story that we get to participate in. 
I, I just was talking, one of our elders, Joel Green, his father-in-law had open-heart surgery this week, and they went up to pray for uh, his, his uh, father-in-law the night before the surgery, and they brought a guitar, and they were kind of playing up there in the hospital room. And as they were playing the guitar, other people on the hospital floor started going, hey, could you send them down to our room after they, they, they finish there? And so they, they end up like a caroling group, moving around the, the floor of the, of the heart wing of the hospital. And I think about that, and Joel said at the moment, he said, how do we get in that room? It's not an accident, is it? There's a God who's authoring the story. I was in Russia in 1995, in the summer of 1995, I uh, met a man um, who was from Kyrgyzstan, and he spoke Kyrgyz, and and I spoke English, and neither of us spoke Russian very well, and, but yet we, we started talking, and I could tell he was interested in Jesus, but there was just a huge language barrier. So we prayed that God would provide a way for us to communicate with Dima. And in the, after that prayer, in a city of a million people, guess who I meet but a Christian involved with the same ministry that I was who was from Kyrgyzstan. I said, hey, would you come with me to meet my friend Dima? And they sat down, and they just talked. I just listened. I'm like, this is amazing. I don't know what they're saying, but it's, it seems intense. And they talked, and they talked about Jesus. How does that happen? It's not by accident. Somebody's authoring that story. What if we viewed our lives as a story that God is authoring? We can trust him. We can follow. Friends, G.B. Hardy says this. As I looked at religion... And I have two questions. Has anybody conquered death? And did they make a way for me? Jesus has conquered death. And he's made a way for us. Father, thank you for just the privilege of following you and knowing you. Father, I pray that you would just help us be a people that falls at the feet of Jesus and trusts him to give us new life. And Father, thank you that the the resurrection that you provide for the girl is available to us. Father, you do the, uh, the miraculous miracle in the first century to let us know your power and authority over death so that we might trust you with our souls, that even though we may die physically, that we might live spiritually. You make that clear through miracles like this. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to faithfully fall at your feet and wait for your resurrection in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.